A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And here we are for part two about uh, surrounding the yard site, Yudal of Cheshven of the Mira Sheshiva, Reb Nassim Finkel, and did part one, did a little bit of a background on his family. And um, I want to continue today. And I'll start with um, the letters came in thick and fast on this episode. It seems to have uh, been popular. A lot of people knew him. It's very recent. It's not ancient history. Um, so I'll read you one of the uh, the letters I got. And it's, you know, and I've, again, I've heard many, many stories. I've experienced many stories with him. And this was a good one. So <laughs> here we go. This is it. Uh, quote, great episode on the yeshiva. Quick story. I was in, yesh- in a yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael and not happy where I was. This was in El um, 2011. A rebbe in the yeshiva took me to see the Rosh Yeshiva, meaning the Mir Yeshiva, Rosh Finkel. And he told me something that I think about every single day. We are going to find the perfect yeshiva for you. It might be the Mir Yeshiva, it might be someplace else, but a Yeshiva somewhere is missing you as a Talmud. He gave me a kiss on the forehead. He was Nifter a few weeks later, and I never got to thank him for the help. I had one conversation with him, and I think about him every day. So there you go. That's that's a beautiful story. It's one of one of the nicest uh, one of the nicest stories I've heard about the Yeshiva, and it definitely typifies him. Um, it's interesting that he was, one of the interesting things about him was that he was someone who, his door was completely open to people from outside his yeshiva. And he uh, originally, what, what one of his trademarks became his Friday afternoon chumashir in his house. Um, it was a very relaxed uh, chumashir. I was privileged to participate for several years in the, in the chumashir. It was very relaxed. He never wore his frock or his Hamburg hat. He always wore his, like, you know, some like a house robe type of thing, and he was in a more relaxed mood. He also spoke in English then, you know, inside the yeshiva. When he gave a shir, it was usually in Yiddish and certain places in Hebrew. 
He usually did not speak publicly in English, unless it was certain circumstances, definitely not in the yeshiva itself. And, um, but by the Chumash here in his house, he spoke in English. And it was very, very, very good, very good atmosphere. That's what we said in those days when we were, when we had boring uh, forms of expression. Today we would say it was a good vibe and there was a lot of good energy there. But that's, that's the new way of saying things. In any event, so the, um, the, uh, so the, the, one of the, one of his, what it's, what people, many people don't know, um, is that this Chomashir was originally started for students who were not in the Mir Yeshiva. He started this for American Yeshiva guys who were in other Yeshivas in Yerushalayim, who were not in the Mir Yeshiva, or perhaps in, in, uh, not as prestigious Yeshivas as the Mir Yeshiva. And he wanted to be able to be available for them as well. And eventually it became mostly uh, guys from the mirror. But I remember even in my time, there were outsiders who came in. And there were always outsiders who felt welcome there. And um, he always made them feel very much at home. And, and um, there's all kinds of stories about that as well. So we left off last time where he was, where he was in high school. He was in a... In in a, in a co-ed high school, it was one of the one of the crowns. I don't know, I get mixed up with the different crowns uh, schools in Chicago, Ida Crown or Ari Crown or one of the crowns. And um, he um, his his first connection to Mirishiv was actually once again through his father, um, one of the people who came fundraising in Chicago. That was a was a guest in their house was the Mir Rosh Yeshiva or Blazer Yudel Finkel, the original or Blazer Yudel Finkel of the Mir, who was an elderly man at the time, and he stayed by his nephew's house when he was fundraising in Chicago, and eventually he appoints his nephew, Rebellion Mayor Finkel, to be what we would call today the uh the 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 one in charge of the American office of the Yeshiva or the the, the president, the CEO, I don't know what you want to call it, what the official term would be, but the one who ran the show together with Rabbi Shamshin Rafael Weiss, who was also an interesting personality, he was in New York, Rebelli Mayor Finkel was in Chicago, but he was officially in charge of the original, or one of the original, there was a, an earlier stage of it before the war that he was obviously not involved in, but you're talking about in the, the late 50s or early 60s, um, his father becomes the president or so, something of that title, of the mere American office. That's the, the first uh, good connection. But he does come as a high school student with his family to visit Eretz Yisrael for the first time. Interestingly enough, this, this high school, this um, visit was through the Israel bonds. And like I said last time in episode one, the, the communal involvement of his, par- part one, excuse me, of, of, of the Rashiva. Uh, the communal involvement of his parents was to was basically in, they were involved in everything and they were very heavily uh, involved in fundraising and helping and running events and all kinds of things like that for Israel Bonds. And Israel Bonds was sort of involved in either sponsoring or they won some sort of trip, they, but it was because of Israel Bonds that they came to Israel, that's the bottom line. And, they, and uh, he comes to Israel. And he gets his first real exposure to Mir Yeshiva. So I guess we need to credit Israel Bonds for a, a, in a backhanded way for getting us the Mir Yeshiva. But I don't want to go there. I'll get in trouble. So he meets up with Reblaze Yudel Finkel again. And he has this exposure to Mir Yeshiva. He visits it. 
Lezir Finkel somehow convinces his mother to allow him to stay for a few months. And uh, when I interviewed his mother last year, she said, you know, Rebbe was so sincere about it, and he he was so, uh, you know, convincing. And the way he cried to me, he said, you're his mother, I can't do anything without your permission, but you have to understand that the future of your boy, and so on and so forth. And she was finally convinced, and he stayed in in the mirror. Now, he only stayed there for a few months that time. He went back after a few months, he went back to his high school in Chicago to finish his high school degree. He did not stay in the Mir Yeshiva right away. But during that time, he actually was tutored by the only American in the Yeshiva. This I heard, I used to eat Shabbos meals by him, Rabbi Yosef Stern, Rabbi Yosef Stern, Levracha, a very special man. He was a, a grandson of the famed uh, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman of All for the Boss fame. So he lived in Meishar, I used to eat Friday night by him, he's wealth of stories. He had so many stories about everything he had studied in, in Tarvadas and in Tells in America before coming by boat to Eretz Yisrael in the 1950s. And he told me he came by boat and he never left Eretz Yisrael, not even once after he came. So he was never in a plane in his life. <laughs> Unbelievable. So he told me that he was the only American in the yeshiva when the yeshiva came that first time. And Blaise Yudel asked him, uh, to learn with his young uh, great nephew, um, Nassim Svi Finkel, Nassim Svi Finkel at the time, and so he he was his, his first tutor, and he told me actually, also you see a little something about the Rashiva, Mr. Yosef Stern told me that this is someone, he had tutored him when he was in high school when he first came to Yeshiva. When when he was, when Yosef Stern was a student at the Yeshiva, and Nassim Svi was a young high school student visiting the Yeshiva. And he said until a few years earlier, now the Rashiva was sick with Parkinson's in his later years, and it was very hard for him to get around, it was hard for him to talk, it was hard for him to do anything. That became the dominant feature, unfortunately, of his later years, how weak he was, and it was, you know, it was a very degenerating disease. It got worse and worse, and he, he always had to deal with those challenges, and that's part of also his greatness about how he dealt with it and how he was able to overcome certain uh, limitations that he had. And, uh, you know, it's, that's also a story about how he dealt with his Parkinson's. But in any event, he said up until recent years when his Parkinson's got bad, Rashid used to visit this Rabbi Yosef Stern in, in his house on Yantif because he said, you're my Rebbe, you were my first Rebbe in the Mir Yeshiva, I'm coming to visit you. So the great Mir Yeshiva would come and visit him. So that's also an interesting thing. So he goes back to Chicago and he finishes high school, he gets his diploma, he graduates, everything's great. And there are several guys in his class, even back then in this early time, who are going to study in Eretz Yisrael, uh, before it became a very in-trend. And that's, um, that, that says a lot about who is, you know, what, what type of people there were. And they were going to different places, in Eretz, not, not all of them obviously, but there was a group that was going. And he goes to Eretz Yisrael as well, and he goes back to his great uncle, Rebbe Yudel, the Mir Shashiva. He lives in his house. He's very, very much influenced by him. It was something he talked about for the rest of his life, how much of a personal influence he had uh, had on him, uh, his great uncle, Rebbe Yudel. So he, he goes through this um, transformation in the mirror. By the way, his parents keep on visiting. They come. He had a younger brother, Rebbe Gedalia, and eventually his parents uh, had him come 
to the Mir Yeshiva, and eventually when his parents retired, they themselves moved to Eretz Yisrael in their later years, and like I said, his mother still lives here. So, they, in fact, his parents decided to make uh, the Rashiva's younger brother of Gedalia, they decided to make his bar mitzvah in Yerushalayim. They made it in Yerushalayim, and um, everyone came. This was a Finkel, he was a prominent person, many of them had been his guests in Chicago, so all these great Rashi Yeshiva attended the bar mitzvah from Hebron, from Mir, from everywhere, but also Mrs. Sarah Finkel was related to Abba Ibn, the uh, I don't know if he was the foreign minister at that time or the ambassador to the UN or and he happened to be in Israel, whatever his position was. He had a long and illustrious career, a fascinating individual, Abba Ibn, but definitely not religious by any extent of the definition of that. And he was the prominent guest at the Finkel Bar Mitzvah in Yerushalayim with all these other Rashi Yeshiva. And since he was such a polished and a, amazing speaker, he was asked to give a speech by this Bar Mitzvah. And he said, I'm not speaking as a representative of the state of Israel's government. I'm speaking as a member of the family. And he went ahead and gave a nice speech. So there you have an Abba Ibn connection as well. So he eventually gets married to his, his, his second cousin, the, the, right? His, uh, um, the Yudel, the Rosh Hashiva, is his great uncle. So his son, Rabbeinish, who later um, was the Rosh Hashiva, also had five daughters. And the oldest daughter married the Rosh Hashiva. So he marries his cousin. So it's a Finkel marrying a Finkel. And he stays, settles down near the Yeshiva. And he is devoted to his, his striving for greatness, his studies, his learning, and his amazing Hasmada, his diligence. He doesn't stop. He related this to us once during a Chomash year. I remember him saying, I think it could be even on more than one occasion, he told us, he was talking about appreciating what people do for you, and he wanted to speak, and he spoke to us publicly, as, as, as what his wife did for him in his younger years. It was amazing to see, and beautiful to see also how he spoke in awe and appreciation for what his wife did. And since he had married into Rabbeinish Finkel's family, Rabbeinish, who was a fa- fascinating person, but one of, his, one of his, the features about him was that his, since... He had met Rabbeinish had married into the family of the Chazayin Ish. He was married to a Greinerman, so he had taken on a lot of the chumras of the Chazayin Ish. And one of those was not to use electricity on Shabbos. So the Rashiva did that as well and took on his father-in-law's customs. And he did not use a electricity on Shabbos. He was using a gas lantern to light up his living room on Shabbos. And he learned for many studied. Studied Torah. He learned Basmada for many, many hours over every Shabbos when he was a young married uh, a younger man in the Mary Shiva. So he, 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 being that it was a gas lantern, he didn't want to uh, violate the halacha of tilting a, a, a nair, tilting a candle or any light source to make the light brighter. And if you would tilt the gas lantern, then there more gas would go towards the wick or whatever it is. I'm not exactly sure how these things work. And it would, he was not allowed to learn la'ar haner. He wasn't allowed to learn next to this candle so that because he might come to tilt it. So the halacha is, is that you're allowed to learn there if you have a shaymer, if someone is watching you. Now that shimer can't be busy doing something else. In other words, they can't be reading or doing or playing a game or doing something else or falling asleep. 
So his wife was his shimer, and for several hours on end, six, seven, eight hours, he described an enormous amount of hours, every single Shabbos, for several years, his wife would sit there being his shimer, and he spoke in awe and in appreciation of his wife about what she did for him during those years, so that he was able to become what he became. Now, he, what, what was interesting is that with all his greatness, and he eventually becomes this huge Talmud Chacham, and he remains to a certain extent, and I mean this in a, in a good way, not in a, not in a disrespectful way, a regular guy. Very normal, very down-to-earth, very understanding. And when he becomes the Rosh Hashiva after his father was passing in the winter, in February of 1990, he, his father, a passes away. The Rosh Hashiva becomes the Rosh Hashiva. You know, among all the, all, all, all the other couple of candidates, he becomes the sole Rosh Hashiva. And even though other people, people thought they would become, and other become, and they might be called the Rosh Hashiva, in the end of the day, he was the sole leader and the only one who made the decisions and the fundraising. And, uh, and you know, with all his modesty and good cheer, he knew that he was in charge. In fact, they, they uh, also an interesting story, he, uh, I went in the second year or two before he died, um, it was a, a, a strange mere custom that almost no one knows about, comes from also Laser Yudel's time, it's an old custom that the Mir had, I think it even might have come from Europe already, is that in Hishana Rabbah, after Davani, a group of the Rabbeim, of the Yeshiva, of the Rashi Yeshiva, they get to gather together in the Rashi Yeshiva's house and they study the first Mishnah of the upcoming Zman Masechta. So if they're learning Bava Metziah, they're going to learn the first Mishnah of Bava Metziah together. That gets them started. Eishan and Rabbah, they already get started for the upcoming Zman in the Yeshiva. So they do that, and they're learning the first Mishnah above Metziah. And there's a Mishnah that says, It's talking about they're claiming ownership on an animal. One of them is riding the animal. One of them is leading the animal. Manig, he's leading it. So one of the those present asked, why does it say one is riding it and one is leading it? Why doesn't it say manhigim? There were two people leading it. And the Rosh Hashiva turns to him and said, there's no such thing as two manhigim. There's one manhig. And he knew exactly who that manhig was. who was the one leading the yeshiva. So he had that side to him as well. So he goes this massive building campaign, expanding um, expanding the student body, everyone's accepted. There's an open door policy, which had always been the official policy of the Mir, but the expansion in his day was completely unprecedented in previous times of the yeshiva, or pretty much any other yeshiva in the world, possibly Lakewood. But the the openness, the uh, the um, the 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 acceptance policy of his day was such that anyone who declared that they want to come and study Torah. They're welcome to come to Mary Shiva. Everyone has a place. And underlying that policy was his recognition that that's how he succeeded. He had a place in the yeshiva. He, 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 when he came as a young, young student coming from a co-ed high school, coming from a weaker background in learning, and he found his place and he worked hard to what he became and he utilized the opportunity that the Mary Shiva gave him. So he wanted to give other people that opportunity as well. And that was 
underlying, uh, that was one of the elements, at least, or components that was underlying his policy. A certain ideal that everyone has a chance, everyone has potential, and everyone can find their place in the mirror. And he, therefore, he built it up. He built, he bought up properties, he built up buildings, he went on building sprees and campaigns that made no sense financially, put the yeshiva in debt, and, and people got upset, but he said, I just have to build. He feel, feels, feels the need to keep on building, and even when it makes no sense, but this is his calling, this is his purpose, and he wasn't going to stop. He said this on several occasions, that the exposure to greatness, and he meant by this, you know, um, he meant by this for for us when we're coming to the Mir Yeshiva, the greatness, and maybe perhaps it was a reflection of of his own experience that the exposure to break, the greatness should cause one to think big and not small. Always think big. Uh, try to seek out more, to do more. Don't he said? Don't think cottonous. Always try to think godless, and that's that's what he tried to do. But uh, on the other hand, he was very, very personable, very real, very, you know, down-to-earth, like I said. I remember one time uh, there was some program he did of Asmada, of learning extra hours. I don't remember what it was when I was still single. I was a bachar in the yeshiva. And, uh, and uh, he asked that everyone come to his, anyone who was part of this program, after a couple of months in the program, he asked that they all come to his house in this and this time. Now, either I didn't hear about it right away, or I wasn't able to make it at that time, but I, he asked to come to his house. I went over to him after davening one day, and I said, the other day you said that anyone who's part of this program should come to your house. I missed it. So what did you want? You wanted to tell us something. What, what was it that the Rashiva wanted? So he said, come to my house, uh, um, come to my house after davening. This was in the base Medrash. So I went, uh, I went to his house after davening. And this is in the olden days when, when he was, you know, he was so accessible, there was no one around. His kids were all married. His wife had gone out to the Makola to buy something. He was alone in the house. He was without his hat and jacket. He was in his shirt, which was very often how I met with him and, and many people and schmoozed with him. He was very relaxed like that. And he, I said to him, what, what, what is it? He says, one second. And he goes, starts, gets up. And like I said, he had Parkinson's. It was hard for him to get around. He didn't ask me to get up and go look for something. He went out and started rummaging through the drawers. He comes back with 300 shekel. And he said, this is what I wanted to give to everyone who was part of this program. You earned it. You deserved it. You do, you're doing great. And uh, I don't know. It was just very, it was a very, it was very, in on one hand, a trivial encounter. On the other hand, uh, um, a very powerful one. That, you know, he got up and did that in, in a very, in his own way. And, um, and he had that personal side to him. He even had a bit of a sense of humor. A friend of mine ate by him. And, um, and he asked, and the Rashiva asked him to pour the wine into a bunch of different glasses for people at the table. So he pours the wine. And, you know, like these stories happen, they actually happen in storybooks all the time. But this, my friend told me, was at a meal by the Rashiva's house. So I happen to know that that actually happened. So the, the, the wine spills. So, there, you know, he feels kind of silly. And the Rashiva always had a lot of guests and, and his children, grandchildren, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of people around. And this guy just, messed up, he spilled the wine. So the Rashiva says to him, that's exactly why I asked you to pour it. I didn't want to pour it, and then I would spill it, and I'd feel silly. This way, you know, I got you to pour it. It's, I didn't want this to happen to me. You know, so that's, that's, um, that's um, again, his personal side. I remember uh, before Pesach once, 
I wanted a certain safer on Pesach, and I remembered from the Friday Chumash year, I remembered seeing it in the Rashiva's house. I went up to him and I said, I saw this safer in your house, can I borrow it? And he said, yeah, sure, just remember to return it. Don't, don't forget to return it afterwards. And I, I remember thinking, I had no qualms about it. I didn't, I didn't feel funny. I felt completely comfortable with him going over and doing that, borrowing his safer, returning it a few weeks later. And I related that to a friend of mine. He says, really? He's, he's so chilled about that? And my friend was a little more of a, uh, had a little more chutzpah than I had. So he went over to him at some later time, and he said, there's a whole bunch of svarim that I, that I can't get. The Eitzer doesn't lend them out, and, and I can't find them. And then on the you probably have them in your house. Can I borrow them? Rashiva says, sure. He goes and makes this, he goes rummaging through his shelves in front of the Rashiva's eyes, and he takes out like 14 svarim. <laughs> and I remember him carrying the pile back to the dormitory. So I actually saw this. And, uh, and, and the Rashiva said, okay, these two, he takes out two from the pile. These two I think I might need over the next couple of weeks. The rest of them you can borrow. Just don't forget to return it. And the guy walks back to this dorm room with, um, with all these svarim. Um, my friend, I had, a, I had a friend also, also in the, in the dorm with me who would go every, he decided on his own initiative, he decided his relationship with Rashiva is he's going to go over to him every Friday afternoon and tell him Advar Torah. This guy looked forward to it all week. He would go over and tell the Rashiva his Dvar Torah on the Parsha. The Rashiva was all excited. He would say, what's your Dvar Torah this week? He would listen. He would appreciate it. And, and he would say to him, and what it meant for this guy was that he had that connection. The Rashiva took it in. I remember there were thousands of people like this, uh, uh, you know, driving him, uh, you know, with, with any need that they had. And here, uh, and here he had a place for everyone. Um, he, he always tried to maintain his independence despite his illness. I remember seeing him uh, many times working very hard to tie his shoes. Right? Not a big mitzvah to do, but he just didn't want to have that situation where someone has to tie his shoes for him. He was very fiercely independent. Um, it was, you know, he spoke openly about, about, about <laughs> unbelievable. You don't have any rest- <laughs> Unique amongst Rashi Yeshiva, when he 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 said once by a chumash here, remember this, never forget it. He was speaking about uh, when things are hard for you, doing it anyway. So he said, "Let me give you an example. This morning I woke up, I didn't feel well, and I was tired." You're looking at a guy who's a, a, a Rashiva in his sixties, Rashiva, the biggest Rashiva in the world, gives many shiurim, sick with Parkinson's, fundraises for an overblown budget, millions of dollars. And he's openly talking to us 20-something-year-olds about, about how it was hard for him to wake up that morning. And he said, I was very tired. I wasn't feeling well. And my wife said, you know what? You went to bed late and you're tired. You're not feeling well. Sleep a little bit extra. You'll dive in later. It's okay. And I said, you know what? I'm going to work extra hard. I'm going to get out of bed. And he says, I was miscabber. That's what he told us. Those are the words he said. I, said, I remember the exact words. He said, I was misgaber, and I got out of bed, and I made it to yeshiva for davening. So you see, it was hard, but I did it, and, 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 and that's what we have to try to do in life. And it was so simple, it was so real, um, that, that, that lesson. Um, there's a famous uh, story with the Rashiva of Chaim, Rashiva of Chaim Shmulevitz. It's like a legendary mere story of him going to Kever Rachel and speaking to, to Rachel Imenu, as if, as if he's like having a conversation with her. He says, Mama Rachel, my mother Rachel, and he almost demands of her that he, 
that she continued crying, and it's a very famous story. And um, and and the Rashiva was in. I heard this from someone who was in the room when this happened. The Rashiva was in England fundraising, and the fundraise and the the person who was trying to solicit funds from asked the Rashiva to, to to relate this story. The Rashiva asked another person who was with him to say this story, and the person who said this story had been. The reason the Rashida asked him to, to, this other fellow to say the story was because this other fellow who was with the Rashiva on this fundraising trip was with Reb Chaim Shmulevitz and Kei Rachel when the story happened, when he spoke to Mama Rachel. And the way this fellow prefaced the story was that the Rashiva Reb Chaim was thinking of going to, to Kei Rachel that morning. He went in to ask his wife, Reb Tzinchana Miriam, um, if he if he can come back a little later that morning because he's thinking of going to Kever Rachel, and then he drove to Kever Rachel, and then he spoke Mama Rachel, and then the whole story, the whole thing, and he asked her, keep on crying, even though Hashem says don't cry, keep on crying, the whole very powerfully emotional story. The Rashiva said to my friend afterwards, he said to him, everyone talks about the story of Reb Chaim, and they talk about how he spoke to Mama Rachel and demands that she should keep on crying. But here, the lesson that I'm taking out of this story is that he asked his wife. Before he went out, and when he knew he was going to come back a little later, he asked his wife first. And that's something that I want to keep in mind, and I want to remember, and I want to work on. And, uh, and that, that's what, he, that's what he, uh, he, um, he wanted to do. I remember one time I had a meeting with him. I was supposed to meet, my wife and I were supposed to meet with him and seek his advice about something. And uh, he had to cancel the meeting. He saw me. I was still in yeshiva then. So he saw me. He was in his car. He was being driven somewhere. So he saw me. He called me over to his car. And he said, I want to apologize to you. I have a meeting later today. And I'm unfortunately going to have to cancel my meeting with you. I wanted to apologize. And we'll reschedule for tomorrow. And again, like, you know, a busy man. He doesn't owe me an apology. He's doing a favor for me that he's able to meet with me. But that was his... His Darachers, he actually was my Masader Kedushin by my wedding. I had the schus to have him. Uh, my wedding was in the pouring, pouring rain, absolute downpour. It was, it was, I mean, I think it was a disaster. A lot of people thought it was very special. And uh, he came in the pouring rain. Again, he's not healthy. It's hard for him to walk, to get around. When he gets under the chuppah, I noticed that he only said Mazel Tov to me. Well, I was the chassan. He said third. I was third on the list. There were two other people that he went ahead and said Mazel Tov to. And that, the, the first one was my wife's grandfather, who was an Alta Mirror from Shanghai. He had been in Shanghai during the war, an older uh, mirror from, uh, from the war period. He said Mazel Tov to him first. And then he said Mazel Tov to one of my Edim. I had two Edim. One of them was Rebarrel Wine. Um, and Zosan Gesund and Stark. He should live and be well. And, and Rivera Wine from Chicago. And when the Rashiva had been in high school in Chicago, Rivera Wine, who was an older Bacher learning in, in Beis Medrash Torah, uh, Hebrew Theological College, had tutored the Rosh Hashiva in high school. So the Rashiva considered him also, to a certain extent, one of his mentors, learned Mishnayis with him when he was in high school. And he said Mazel Tov to Rabbi Wine. And then I got the, the Mazel Tov. So I just want to end off with the last story, even though I went way, 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 way over time, but I got carried away here, was um, he came back from a fundraising trip, 
on a Thursday night, Friday morning. He was exhausted, but he gave the Chumash here anyway. And uh, he tells us about his fundraising trip. And he shares that with us instead of jumping into his Dvar Torah. And he says, I'm so happy to be back and be back in the yeshiva. And then he gets very emotional. And he got emotional very often in the Chumash here. I remember there was a terrorist attack or if a calamity, someone had died or was sick, he would very often get up in, at the end of the Chumash and say Tehillim with us, and he would cry. He, was a, he had a very powerful emotion and, and very much cared about the pain of others, so he did that very often. But here, he got all emotional, and after his fundraising trip, and he was back with us, he said, it's great to be back with you guys, and you know, be here and at home and in the yeshiva. And then he says, I want to tell you something. I missed you all. And he said something like that. It was so simple, so sincere, and so not typical as a Rosh Yeshiva-ly thing to say. You know, something on that, on that level. That's what really made him so special. I missed you all. And, uh, and, um, and we miss him. So, so that's a little bit about the, the Rosh Yeshiva, Reb Nassim Finkel. This is Yehudi Gabriel's Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com. Questions, comments, sources, trips and tours to all over of Jewish history. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, um, Stitcher, and um, Spotify. And you can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.